The image of the flight attendant has changed a bit. It's, you know, we're not all young, thin, white, and unmarried. Um, it's a lot more diverse. But again, remember to respect us like you would your, I, I don't know, your local, your dentist or your doctor. Farming, uh, whether it's here in West Virginia or really anywhere across the country, it is a real struggle these days because too often uh, whatever you're farming, whether it's dairy, whether it's sheep, lamb, corn and soybeans, uh, the margins out there are so thin that, uh, quite frankly, it's, it's hard for farms to stay in business. We definitely need to focus on the internal organizing and getting, getting the uh, solidarity level up in this plant so the company know when we sit down in front of them, we're going to be able to really have negotiation and bargaining power. The Minnesota Nurses Association announced yesterday what is believed to be the first successful defeat of anti-union efforts to remove union representation. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, flight attendant Johnny Lane talks with the Working People podcast about how an English major became a flight attendant, working conditions in the not-so-friendly skies, and why she and her colleagues are unionizing at Delta. Then, on America's Workforce Radio... National Farmers Union President Rob LaRue discusses the need to enforce livestock and agriculture antitrust laws. From new network member Labor Radio on WORT, the Minnesota Nurses Association announces the first successful defeat of anti-union efforts. And in our last segment, Hostess Local 84 Rep. Daryl Copeland tells the BCTGM Voices Project about how he became a union activist and leader. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we like to call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today, brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and The Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor, and made possible by the support of listeners like you. Working People is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. So if you're hungry for more labor and worker-focused shows like ours, follow the link in the show notes and go check out the other great shows in our network. My name is Maximilian Alvarez, and I am recording this intro live from New York City. (laughs) 
That's right, baby. Your boy has been in the Big Apple this past week. Uh, been traveling for work and for a very mini book tour. Uh, and I'm actually recording this intro um, in my, you know, creepy little hotel room. So apologies if there's a bit of an echo. As the great journalist and friend of the show, Michael Sinato, wrote for The Guardian, quote, Flight attendants at Delta are currently pushing to form a union at the only major airline in the United States where flight attendants are not unionized. And, you know, just as Delta has pulled out all the stops to fight off past unionization efforts, you know that they're going to do the same this time around. But, you know, workers and organizers are confident that this time they're going to get a victory and that that victory is going to improve Delta's business, the customer experience, and, of course, the lives of Delta flight attendants like Johnny. This is her story. Hello, my name is Johnny Lane. Um, I'm a Delta flight attendant, and um, I've been a flight attendant for almost 15 years now. And so I'm excited to be here. You live a life where you're you're traveling all over the place, and you know, staying in hotels and and kind of have the you know flight attendant schedule. Like, do you still feel rooted to a certain? place? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up in Decatur, Georgia. It's uh, about 15, 20 minutes outside of Atlanta. So I and feel very much at home um, in Georgia and Atlanta. That's where my heart is. My Both my parents are still alive. They live there as well as my older sister. So I always call um, Atlanta Georgia, my home. That's where I feel the most rooted. But I currently live in Colorado, in Denver, actually. When you were, you know, still growing up in Decatur, like, like I know that Atlanta is a major, you know, air travel hub. Like, was that central at all to to your life and like what you wanted to do when you grew up or did you kind of like fall into this industry later in life? I absolutely fell into it later uh, than life. After I graduated high school, I went to Auburn University, War Dam Eagle, and um, I got my bachelor's degree in English. And then I went on to get a master's degree in literature from the University of Tennessee. So I had fully planned on taking a quick break and then going back to get my PhD because I was like, oh, okay, I haven't experienced anything. I hadn't seen the world. So I got the opportunity to travel to China and it just changed my world. It blew my mind. So when I came back mm. to Atlanta, I had applied to grad school and, you know, I had gotten in, but I was like, you know what? I need something in the interim. I need to make some money. What can I do? Oh, why don't I just be a flight attendant? Let me try that for a few years and I'll go back to school. And here I am almost 15 years later um, as a flight attendant and I haven't looked back since. It's been a, 
amazing experience. I have to ask, when you were at Auburn and then at, at uh, your master's program, what kind of literature was it that, that really excited you? What were you reading at the time? I wanted to, um, I tried to avoid African-American literature. I just was like, oh, Johnny, that's so stereotypical. Um, you're black and they expect you to study African-American literature. No, mm -hmm. do something else. So I tried to do early American, but I just felt called to some of these stories that had so much rich history and use of language and culture. And it allowed me to learn so much about myself and my own people. And so I just, um, I gravitated towards Toni Morrison, Richard Wright, uh, Ralph Ellison, and of course, you know, all these big names, and even now um, more current, like Colson Whitehead, people like that who um, were just doing so much with the written word, and they were able to tell our stories in such a unique and profound way. So walk me through... Like what it was like just starting at Delta. It's so tough being a new flight attendant. You're excited. You're happy about the job. But then you get thrown into the deep end and it's either sink or swim. It's just one of those jobs where you learn on the fly. It was exciting at first, but it really hit me like those first uh, two to three years. It was tough, but I... Um, I always tell people it, it is true. If you can make it here in New York or really in this job as a flight attendant, you can do just about anything. Something that people don't realize. We spend a lot of time before we get to the airport prepping even for just a short flight. We're not just um, bodies in a uniform. We're on our feet all day. We don't get a regular break. I just wanted to kind of like ask a question if you're comfortable talking about it working in the airline industry particularly as a flight attendant you know like a lot of other customer facing service industry type jobs you know you can deal with a lot of abuse and harassment from customers i mean the image of the flight attendant has changed a bit it's you know we're not all young thin white and unmarried um it's a lot more diverse but again, remember to respect us like you would your, I, I don't know, your local, your dentist or your doctor. I could easily have like 100 people touch me in a day. Everyone gets super offended as if um, my body and my person is either free for them to touch or they don't consider that at all. Like, oh, I can't touch you? Well, no. Do you go to your cashier at the grocery store and touch them on their hip and rub them if you need help finding um, an item in the grocery store? No, you don't do that. I think I, I read this this quote from uh, the great Michael Sinato's, um report in The Guardian of it. But just for folks listening, to remind you, Michael writes, quote, only about 20% of the workforce at Delta is represented by a labor union consisting of pilots and dispatchers compared with 86% of the workforce at American Airlines, 85% at United, 82% at Southwest, 86% at Alaska, and 48% at JetBlue. If you could kind of talk, talk us through, you know, the current organizing 
uh, efforts, um, you know, what folks are talking about, what listeners should be on the lookout for? I am ashamed to admit I voted no in our first um, union vote. And so fast forward years um, up until now, a spoiler alert, it didn't get better. Um, conditions uh, deteriorated, uh, not rapidly, um, but over the years. And then here we are um, moving into COVID and post-COVID. Some of uh, my coworkers and I, we realized like, this is not okay. Like having to fight for certain safety protections and to even wear masks on um, the airplane, things that should have just been easy and uh, in place for us. We had to say, hey, management, no, this is not okay. Our safety is important. We're the ones on the aircraft doing the work every day. We're the ones who are getting assaulted by the passengers you know, take care of us. You said you were, and you know, you're not. So we decided to do something about that. We saw that other airlines were, other flight attendants were able to say, Hey, no, that's not okay. We need gloves. We need masks. We need protocols. And they were able to get that done because they had a united uh, voice, one with power behind them in the workplace. And unfortunately we didn't have that same structure. And so that's how we are here today with our big uh, union drive. I mean, uh, this has been a long time coming, but really through COVID, we noticed the changes and the differences between what other flight attendants um, who are at union carriers were getting. They They were able to use their voice and demand uh, certain things for their safety and to protect um, their lives and their livelihood. And we didn't have that. So we were like, we need to do something about it. And unionizing, um, we decided that was the way to go. Could you just give us like a a bit of a rundown of what folks out there listening can do uh, to show support for you and then all of the flight attendants at Delta? As, uh, as passengers, customers, and supporters, what you all can do is when you get on a Delta flight, show your support. If you are in a union, say, hey, you know what? I know you guys are unionizing. I love my union. You guys should, should unionize too. Simple as that. We also have a website, deltaafa.org slash support. You can go there and we have a page for you to sign up as a supporter. We'll send you supplies. You could wear a big button that says, I'm a Delta AFA supporter. And when you get on a flight, we know like, hey, that person um, has our back and they want us to unionize. I know the world does um, world does as well. And so we absolutely feel it. We love the support. Um, you can also reach out to us on um, Twitter, on social media, we're on Instagram, Delta AFA. We're on Twitter, Delta AFA and AFA CWA. We are out there uh, spreading the word and sharing our story. And thank you so much, Max, for allowing me to tell mine.
Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Right now, Let's go to uh, West Virginia, Greenville, West Virginia. He's on a farm, and he's also the president of the National Farmers Union. That would be Rob LaRue. Website for the National Farmers Union is nfu.org. And this is a special day to feature Rob and the National Farmers Union because it's National Farmers Day. So we salute all farmers that may be listening to the show. Probably not because they're busy working and getting screwed over on the prices that they sell to the wholesalers. Rob LaRue, welcome to America's Workforce. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. So, you're still a farmer. Talk to me about uh, about your farm in, uh, what is it, Greenville, West Virginia. It started out as a dairy farm, is that right? That's right. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, one of these great stories, I mean, in terms of uh, family uh, and passing this farm down to the next generation for for many, many years. But I tell you what, farming, uh, whether it's here in West Virginia or really anywhere across the country, it is a real struggle these days because too often uh, whatever you're farming, whether it's dairy, whether it's you know sheep, lamb, uh, or uh, corn and soybeans, uh, the margins out there are so thin that, uh, quite frankly, it's, it's hard for farms to stay um, uh, in business. Rob, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your involvement here because you still have that farm in Greenville, West Virginia. In fact, you're on it today. But you also served in Congress for, for 22 years working for the uh, Agriculture Department. Kind of an interesting journey. Maybe you can uh, speak to uh, that time in your life. And, uh, and also, maybe you can offer some insight here into policy federal policy i always say you have to watch what comes out of washington because it affects us later on in life oh my gosh you yeah. you really nailed it there and that is that's how i ended up on this journey uh working on uh, you know a lot of uh policy uh at the department of agriculture uh at the u.s house of representatives uh there in congress and it's really because uh a, while some folks may think that a lot of what farmers get out there uh, is just based upon an open market, a free market, if you will, there is nothing, first of all, free about this marketplace because we know uh, that uh, the rules and uh, regulations in place to kind of make sure that there's a fair market doesn't uh, fully work. Uh, and that's evident for in a lot of ways. You know, I want to stay here at the farm. I want to be a part of this. But uh, I also recognize that whether it's policies in Washington um, or uh, rules and regulations uh, in the agencies out there, uh, we have to keep our eye on that and we have to keep up the fight and work together to make sure that we can get a fair uh, marketplace out there. And you do that on behalf of the National Farmers Union, which is kind of interesting because it's really not a labor union. You got to help me out on that one. Now, when I, when I think of farmers union, I think of the, you know, the United Farm Workers. I think of Cesar Chavez, the late Cesar Chavez and all that. So you're a union, but you're not a union. Can you explain that part for me, uh, Rob? <laughs> Absolutely. 
So first of all, we align ourselves with that number of unions. Uh, you know, in, in fact, uh, uh, the American Federation of Teachers, we work very closely with uh, on a number of issues, and there's uh, several others that we that we work with as well. But National Farmers Union was uh, originated back in 1902, so 120 years ago, and it really came about at a time when the U.S. economy was dominated by just a couple of key players that were uh, essentially, and in some cases, purely monopolies. So you had the banks out there, you had the railroads uh, really controlling every sector of, uh, in our case, what farmers uh, had to pay uh, to get goods for them to uh, grow their crops, and then uh, controlled every sector uh, for selling those crops out on the market. And uh, a, a group of farmers got together, working collectively, uh, to bring about change in that space. And that was really the beginning of what we saw as antitrust uh, regulations kind of breaking up some of these monopolies. Uh, it was the creation of uh, farmer cooperatives out there. And so, uh, you know, we consider ourselves a union of, you know, uh, uh, family farmers out there working collectively to make sure that there's fairness. Uh, we certainly uh, again, align ourselves not only with those uh, unions like the teachers and so forth, trying to bring about you know positive change in in rural areas, for example, uh, but we also align ourselves with those farm worker uh, unions that you referenced, like uh, uh, United Farm Workers uh, and so forth. So. There's a lot of work there that still needs to be done. His name is Rob LaRue, and he's president of the National Farmers Union. Again, the website, nfu.org. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. The Minnesota Nurses Association announced yesterday what is believed to be the first successful defeat of anti-union efforts to remove union representation. The National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, backed by dark money from millionaires and billionaires, tries to undermine the power of workers. Nurses at Mayo Health Clinic in Lake City supported the union by a wide margin. The smaller clinic is not part of the larger unit of 15,000 nurses who held a three-day strike. Shelby Meinke, a nurse at the clinic, described how the effort began at the Mayo Health Clinic in August. I believe there's 33 nurses on our unit, give or take, and I don't know exactly how it all got started, but I know that a nurse filed the petition, um, went to staff members and asked them if they wanted more information on what Mayo could give us as our employer instead of being unionized and being represented by MNA. And um, a number of our staff wanted more information, so that's how they got the petition filed. The employer held meetings with the nurses describing the wages they could have without a union. They did hold meetings with us after the petition was filed to talk about what they could offer. They didn't give us an exact percentage on what we would get, but they did come out with a general statement saying that nobody has ever lost pay. Um, Anybody who's ever deunionized has always increased in their pay, is what they said. And then a day before our vote, they announced that they were giving a 6% pay increase for the 
payroll for the end of the year, non-union employees. In the end, the nurses voted to stay in the union. 22 nurses voted to keep the union and five voted to decertify. We were pretty happy with that. After the vote, the nurses were optimistic. Our contract ends at the end of the year and we've got negotiations opening up for our contract. So we're hoping that with, you know, how many people showed up to back us up and vote yes to keep our union, that we'll have the same drive through negotiations and we'll come out with better on the other end of that. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. In this episode, we get to know Daryl Copeland, an emerging BCTGM leader in the Southern region. Brother Copeland came on the international staff as an organizer in 2020 and was recently promoted to the position of international representative in that region. Daryl tells us about his journey within the BCTGM, and later we learn about a caretaker trusteeship he is leading in Right to Work Columbus, Georgia, to strengthen the bargaining power at Hostess Brands. Daryl, can you just talk a little bit about your union background? How did you end up involved with the BCTGM? I really didn't grow up around um, a union environment, and I really didn't know my family was a union family until later in life. But I really got introduced to the union almost by mistake. Uh, um, Right after I graduated college, I played football at Western Michigan. I graduated in 2008, and I came back uh, to Atlanta from, from Western Michigan. And my aunt was working at Nabisco. So now it was Kraft and now it's Mondelez. So she was a union member, but she was only a dues union member. And she's like, hey, I got a good job. I could probably get you on at Kraft if you want a job. So my, my aunt was a union member, dues paying union member. Later, my mom got hired maybe five years after I was working there and she joined the union. And later in life, I found out that my grandpa he worked uh, up under the Teamsters Union for almost 25 years, 30 years. So, you know, I, I really wasn't from a union background, but all of my family actually joined the union and they was dues paying members. So, Cool. So how long were you working at Nabisco before you became a shop steward? I worked uh, maybe six years. I was actually a dues paying member since day one. I joined the union right when I got hired in 2008. It was almost a requirement at Nabisco to join the union. So maybe six, six years, five or six years after becoming you know, a union member, I, I jumped in and became a steward. Vice President Townsend at the time, he was um, the business uh, manager at Local 42. And you know he was talking to me and he asked me, was I interested in, leaving the plant to become an internal organizer. And I had no idea what an internal organizer was at the time. Um, but, you know, he explained to me, said, hey, do what you do right now. Talk to people. You'll go into the plant and you'll start building up membership. You'll talk to the people. You'll build relationships. Great. Okay, so then uh, what year did you get hired by the International Union? So it was uh, March of 2020. I think the first time that I heard of you being really instrumental 
and like an organizing campaign was that Blue City Brewery campaign. I believe that campaign was the first time that our union was able to implement an electronic sign-up card, correct? Yeah. So you had created a page online where workers could go sign the union card instead of having to do that in person. Yeah, so me and international representative Nate Zelf, we kind of kicked the idea around when we was working on the campaign in Hartwell, Georgia. And Nate was like, hey, we really want to do this electronic cards and I really don't know how to do it. And I said, hey, well, I know how to make a website. I guess we could start looking at some of the rules. And I made the website. It was a Wix website. We tried to make it simple as possible so you can use it on your mobile phone. And, you know, you can send a text message out with the link um, or you can send an email out with it as well. And it just gave uh, workers an opportunity to be able to do everything electronically versus doing the cards. In the next half of this discussion, Hostess Brands shop steward Michael Wilson joins to talk about how they're growing union density in the right to work plant. I'm the assistant chief steward for local 84 at Hostess and um, my role there is to assist employees there with any issues or problems they have. Um, Daryl, y'all are working in a right to work state, right? Correct. Yes, Georgia, Georgia's right to work state. And funny thing about it is, uh, you know, down at Hostess, Columbus is basically on the borderline with two right to work states, Alabama and Georgia. It's important to have strong union dedication in these plants when you're in a state like that, because if you don't have everybody on board, especially in a right to work state, it's hard to serve. Yeah, absolutely. I always go in and that's, we've been focusing on, uh, service in the plan and we actually been doing new hire orientations every week because they got language in the contract for new hire orientation so we going into negotiations in uh late october and we want to make sure the membership is high as possible before we actually go into the uh, contract negotiations because if you don't have a great membership the company is not really going to take you serious when you go into the table and saying hey i want to get this i want to get that they know majority of the plan is not really interested, is not involved in the union, they're gonna almost laugh at you at the negotiation table. So I, I'm always uh, telling my members, my union stewards and telling new hires and telling current members like, hey, we definitely need to focus on the internal organizing and getting, getting the uh, solidarity level up in this plant. So the company know when we sit down in front of them, we're gonna be able to really have negotiation and bargaining powers. Awesome. Well, thank you, Daryl. Uh, that's it then. Thank you both. Hope you have a great day and good luck with everything going forward. All right, yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See ya. If you found this content valuable, please consider sharing it on your own social media pages and be sure to tag us. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org. it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150, count them, 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. 
We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us, please do, on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.